0: Well good morning. We want to welcome you this morning to uh, Plum Creek Chapel. Lots of exciting things going on here at the church and um, so we will mention more of those regular announcements at the beginning of our 10 o'clock service but always like to encourage those that are joining by live stream to check out PlumCreekChapel.org. We've done some recent uh, updates to the website. We now have a calendar that's uh, readily accessible and some other announcements and things on the Highlight Carousel. So appreciate you uh, praying for our church as we head into the fall season with lots of exciting things coming down the pike. But this morning we're going to continue our look at what lies ahead. We're kind of coming towards the end. I don't have a timetable agenda. We want to talk about this as long as there are questions and comments. So we'll we'll continue on for at least a few more weeks and I'm not sure what we're going to do on Sunday mornings at nine o'clock when we conclude this series but uh, open to suggestions on that uh, but uh, today we're going to talk about the uh, eternal state and get into some more characteristics of what life will be like when all is said and done but before we do that it's been a busy week in terms of uh, ministry uh, activities and and things over the last to seven days last week I was in New Mexico, and appreciate those who filled in here at Plum Creek Chapel, but let me mention three of the resources coming out of that conference. Uh, Three videos, one of them is an overview and summary of Spirit of the Antichrist, and uh, so if you have not listened to that, all of these are available at the notbyworks.org website. Just click on videos and you'll see them there. They're always in date order. There are several hundred of them going back several years, but uh, they're always in date order with the most recent one on top. And while we're talking about Spirit of the Antichrist, I think most of you know the second volume is due out in uh, no- October, November, and I am really getting excited about it. It's uh, it's complete and going through the editing process, and I'm inserting an introduction and a few other things that I'm working on, but it's going to be 15 chapters, and if you thought volume one covered a lot of ground, you've got to read volume two. It's, it's going to really touch on some key issues of our day as... Uh, We look at the great satanic reset, we look at Klaus Schwab and some of his role to play in uh, the Luciferians ushering in their one world system. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Pray for us as we, it's not easy, it's not an easy task to write and juggle all of the other ministry obligations and things, but um, God is always gracious and uh, really uh, motivated right now and kind of carving out a little bit of time each day to put the finishing touches on that. So, and of course, pray for the Lord's protection because uh, as we saw with the release of Volume 1 on March 21st, it seems like Satan doesn't like to be called out. And even sometimes as I'm writing, I'm thinking, this sentence is probably not going to make Satan happy. <laughs> and, uh, and I just, you know, trust the Lord and he's faithful and uh, truth always wins out. So appreciate your prayers for that. Two other videos from last weekend, uh, one of them, How to Spot Deception. Uh, I've talked about this many times over the last uh, six or eight months uh, since the book came out. Uh, But everyone is a little bit different because the audience is different and the questions are different and the approach is a little different. But this is essentially chapter 11 in the first book, volume 1. And then the video that's gotten the most attention and uh, was picked up by uh, Harbinger's Daily is the one on transhumanism. And uh, again, I've talked about that before, but this time it was a little more uh, concentrated, a little more focused on just uh, what is transhumanism. And so that video is there as well. And then uh, this last Thursday, I did a podcast on Life Clips podcast uh, with uh, Kim uh, Durante. I've uh, worked with her before over the last few years, and I think this was our third or fourth time to be on that podcast. But uh, the topic that she asked me to come on and address is New Age Religion and the New World Order. Now, that's a podcast, so it's audio only, but you can check that out at the Not by Works podcast channel, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, also... Like I said, it was a busy week, but Tuesday, last week, I did uh, one, on, or I guess it was last Sunday, we released one on God's 490-year timetable, and that is uh, just a succinct overview of Daniel's famous prophecy uh, in Daniel chapter 9, and it relates to the return of Christ. A lot of people don't realize, but God told us exactly when Christ is going to return to establish the long-awaited kingdom. He said from the from this point to this point, It's going to be 483 years. Then there's going to be a gap of time. And at some point in the future, the final seven years will start. And at the end of that seven years, Christ will come back. So it's really the key to end times uh, prophecy. So check that podcast out. Uh, If you like to read, there's a devotional, a short page and a half devotional, God in the Hands of Angry Sinners. And I talked about how uh, I went back to the uh, Great Awakening with Jonathan Edwards and the famous sermon that he preached in Enfield, Connecticut, And then sort of a twist or play on words there, talk about what it's like today, several hundred years later in the church, as people have essentially created God in the image of man. And we completed last Wednesday our Calvinism series, What is Calvinism and Is It Biblical? Ten parts in total. Uh, And uh, if you have not been able to join us on Wednesdays or have not caught up with those, you can uh, check the videos or podcast, either one uh, out at notbyworks.org. So with that... uh, Again, lots of great resources out there for you. Let's uh, dive into uh, the eternal state. And as always, this is uh, coming from the book, What Lies Ahead. There are copies out on the table. If you're uh, new here and have not picked up a copy, that's uh, our gift uh, to you. Uh, if you're watching online, you can get that at the Not by Works store. So uh, as I was driving in this morning, I was thinking about just all of the characteristics of the new heavens and the new earth, and and I just began to for some reason, think about God's grace. You know, God's grace is the prevailing theme of Scripture. We see God's grace from creation all the way to the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, which is what we're talking about. And sometimes as we study the end times, it becomes somewhat academic, somewhat, um, you know, issue related or a position related. People Take, take this view, or this view, or amillennial, or postmillennial, or premillennial, or pre-trib, or mid-trib, or post-trib, or whatever, and they sort of lose sight of the simplicity of God's plan, and, and really the, uh, the, the essence of what it's all about. And, and really, grace is not something that's simply related to our salvation. We certainly understand that, and we've been talking about that on Wednesdays with our study of salvation uh, related to the Calvinist view. I'm critiquing that, and we know the Bible says that it's by grace through faith that we're saved. So we sort of think of grace, don't we, in the context of salvation, but what I want to get you thinking about this morning is grace in the context of God's end times program, grace in the context of Bible prophecy, because we see grace, as I said, running through God's plan of the ages, and that plan, of course, began in the garden. And the biggest, uh, you know, representation or manifestation uh, or expression, I guess I should say, of God's grace begins right in the beginning when Adam and Eve and us sinned when we rebelled against a holy God and instantly God's grace showed itself. Why? Because he uh, prefiguring the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, his eternal son and our savior, he killed the animals to sacrifice and provide a covering for Adam and Eve. Well, that was grace. <clears throat> Adam and Eve didn't deserve that. What did they deserve after sinning? What had God said? In the day thou eatest thereof, you shall surely what? Die. Die. So there you have it. God's grace covered them. We see it uh, in later on in Genesis chapter three when God tells the serpent Satan that so someday I'm going to crush your head, and uh, you're you you know you're you you may have you may some damage along the way but ultimately you are going to be defeated by the seed of the woman capital s referring of course ultimately to christ we see god's grace in the days of noah when not very long relatively speaking after creation mankind had turned utterly against god Uh, all of the created realm had turned against god the demons had turned against god and left their proper domain and everybody was evil and yet in His grace, God rescued eight righteous people who had, not, uh, who had trusted in God and not turned against Him. And that's Noah's family. And so God could have destroyed the earth right then and there, and it would have all been over. But by His grace, He allowed it to continue. Then we, of course, see God's grace later on in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. Here's Abraham. His story is well known. Uh, somewhat of a, Well, not somewhat, but a deeply flawed man at times. And yet God, uh, through no merit of Abraham himself, chose Abraham and offered freely to him a promise called the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant, in which he said that one day all the world will be blessed through you, from your seed. And, And that's where we really begin to see the beginnings of God's plan of the ages. It's really the beginning of the end, not the beginning of the end chronologically, but the beginning of God's uh, revelation of the end how he begins to explain okay here's how it's going to happen and so remember the Abrahamic promise includes the promise of a seed in the line of Abraham and that's Christ the ultimate seed of Abraham it, it involves a promise of land and boundaries that will constitute the messianic kingdom when Christ comes back which we've just been talking about on our Sunday morning uh, nine o'clock series and it involves grace ultimately in blessing the entire world through uh, the nation of Israel and the the ultimate seed of abraham christ so we see grace through abraham and then of course abraham is the father father abraham is sort of the ultimate patriarch of the nation of israel abraham's grandson jacob became israel his name was changed to israel his 12 sons uh, sort of created if you will the 12 tribes of israel not all of his sons had a tribe but 10 of them did and um and then uh, we see God's grace throughout the rest of the Old Testament with, with Israel. I mean, think about Israel. How many times did Israel rebel against God? And, and think about that the next time you find yourself in disobedience to the Lord, walking in the flesh. Think about that the next time you have a rebellious child or a grandchild or friend. Think about that the next time you see people that are not walking with the Lord and you just get kind of angry at them. Just think about Israel as a prefigurement of really all of, all of us and an, and an incredible demonstration of God's grace. I mean, no sooner did they get out of Egypt and already they were grumbling and complaining and rebelling. They, uh, uh, God disciplined them time and again through prophets and priests and kings and judges and you name it. And uh, they were held in captivity to the Assyrians then to the Babylonians and to the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. And yet, through it all, God never abandoned His grace. It's an, it's an eternal attribute of God. And time and again, He said, I will bring you into the land someday. I will give you the blessing, even though you don't deserve it. In fact, if it was deserved, it wouldn't be grace. That's the very nature of grace. It's undeserved merit, undeserved blessing. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, Israel is a classic example of a nation and a people that certainly didn't deserve God's blessing, and yet they are going to get it. And then God set Israel aside temporarily when they crucified the Messiah, when Christ came. Of course, uh, the atoning work of Christ, which we've talked a lot about on Wednesday nights, constitutes the preeminent act of God uh, demonstrating His grace, the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. Grace, justice, mercy all meet up at the cross. we see that at, uh, in John three sixteen right, for God so loved the world that He gave that's grace, His undeserved gift, undeserved merit, His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, that's mercy right. Um, uh, we we deserve death, we deserve eternal punishment in a literal place of torment called hell, but God says you don't have to go there, um, but have everlasting life, and that again is God's incredible gift. Uh, to us. So justice was served at the cross when blood was shed, the penalty was paid, God's wrath was satisfied, all of those things. That's justice. But grace and mercy all coalesced together there at the cross. And then that brings us up to the present age, right? The church age. Do we see God's grace in the church age? Absolutely. In fact, the New Testament tells us that one of the purposes of the church is to be. The, the, the penultimate manifestation of God's grace. Grace in high definition. To showcase God's grace and mercy. And we see that individually. Everyone in this room, if you received the free gift of eternal life by faith, then you're, you understand grace. I hope you do. And it's one of those things that I know in my own life, I understand the theology behind grace, but I need to be reminded of the freshness of grace every day. And of how amazing it is that God would save a sinner like me. And that nothing I can do, nothing can take away the grace that was given to me the moment I trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. So grace is both saving and sustaining. It is, uh, it is humbling. And it ought to uh, motivate us to live lives of gratitude and service and faithfulness to a loving Lord. Who, who provided his grace for us individually. But look at the church as a whole. We think Israel dropped the ball time and time again. Here we are in the church, 2,000 years after the establishment of the church, roughly almost 2,000 years, uh, 13 years, let's see, 12, 11 years shy of the 2,000 year anniversary of the church. Church was founded in 33 AD. Um, and the church has totally presumed upon God's grace time and time again. The church mostly has uh, departed from the Lord. Very few churches today are uh, preaching the Word of God. Uh, In fact, I'll be doing a live interview tomorrow morning with David Fiorazzo on Stand Up for the Truth, and he's asked us to talk about the emergent church and the apostate church and how liberalism crept into the church, and so we're going to go through that tomorrow morning. But here we are, and it's hard to find churches that are preaching the free grace of God, the pure grace of God. They've all abandoned it. And the church today is all about what you do. We're going to talk about that in our message from Acts 14 this morning. It's all about doing things for God and not necessarily preaching the pure uh, gospel. And And yet, God's grace is sufficient. Amen. And He hasn't abandoned. He would be well within His rights, humanly speaking, to say, I'm done. You've crossed the line. Forget it. I'm tired of you rebelling against me time and time again. And yet, He doesn't. And, and that's, that's the hope that we have in the eternal state, is that in spite of our sinfulness and in spite of our rebellion and disobedience, God's promises will come true. They are unconditional uh, covenants. And so uh, God, through His grace, is going to make all things new. And the last two chapters of the Bible outline that for us and explain that uh, for us. So we have talked about uh, the new heaven and the new earth, but I just wanted to sort of make it more personal, if if I can, at least try to communicate what it means to me as as I was thinking about it this week in preparation for this morning. Uh, it's not just you know the culmination of a plan. You know we we love our you know end times charts, right? And I certainly love to use charts as illustrations and. We like to put things in sequential order and we like to proof text and show from scripture, you know, where the kingdom comes and where the rapture is in relation to the second coming and all that. But let's not forget that overarching all of it is an incredible uh, message of God's grace. And so, uh, you know, the eternal state is uh, definitely God's way of making all things new again. Uh, And we talked last week about how, if I can put this up here, uh, individually, when we place our faith in Christ, we become a new creation. We are born again. As I've said many times, the testimony of God's word is that if you're born only once, meaning physically of your mother's womb, you'll experience two deaths. You'll die twice, because you'll die physically, like all flesh and you'll also die spiritually in hell. But if you're born twice, then you only have to die once. If you're born once physically and a second time, uh, you know, spiritually by faith, as Jesus told Nicodemus, then the second death goes away, according to Revelation 20. You don't have to experience that ultimate, eternal death of torment. Uh, And so you'll only die once. And by the way, some of us, if the Lord comes back in our lifetime at the rapture, we won't even have to die physically, right? We by, The Bible says we shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed. So some people won't have to even experience that. So, But similarly, all of creation that's under the curse of sin has to be recreated. God, when you, when you trusted Christ, He didn't just patch up your old nature. He didn't just... Uh, say okay let me make some improvements here let me renovate let me tear down the wallpaper put up some you know different wall coverings and let me get rid of the popcorn ceiling you know that kind of stuff he he totally you know created a new nature and that new nature is now ours it's the it's being in christ is what the new testament calls it and we have we've been born again that's what uh, jesus told nicodemus the phrase born again is actually one word in greek it's the word anothen and it means born from above Uh, or actually again is one word in greek born is is the verb but again is one word it's anothen it means from above so we've been born birthed if you will spiritually from the heavens and that birth takes place the moment faith meets the gospel and so we've been born again and you know, in terms of God's created realm, it too experiences a rebirth. In chapter 20, we spent quite a few weeks talking about the millennial phase of the kingdom. Remember, the millennium is what takes place on the old earth. So uh, this first part here, let's see if I can highlight this. Um, This first part, if you see that red dot right here, is what takes place on the Old Earth. We call that the Millennium because in Revelation 20 it's described as being 1,000 years in length. But at the end of that 1,000 years, Satan is loosed from prison. There's one final battle and then God destroys, according to 2 Peter 3 and Revelation 21, the Old Earth and we move into the New Heavens and New Earth. And that's why this timeline here has an arrow at the end of it. If you can see where my red dot is, that means it goes on in perpetuity. There's no you know, beginning I mean, there's no end to it. There's definitely a hard stop between the beginning of the millennium and the thousand years that it's done. But then the, that old earth, the one we're on today, is destroyed. And it, the, the kingdom continues uh, all the way through to the new heavens and uh, the new earth. So that you know, is a recreation that takes place uh, you know, in, in Revelation 21 and 22, where we're focusing our study on right now we see some of the characteristics of this new creation. Now, you know, we it's difficult to answer all of our questions, what will life be like then, because we are so prone to think and live uh, and function within the realm of time, space, and matter and physicality, right? So if we fall down and skin our knee, like my little granddaughter did this week, you know, it's going to bleed and there's going to be, you're going to need a band-aid and it's going to hurt and, we have physicality. We won't have that in the eternal state. Uh, we know that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, ultimately, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. So this mortal must put on immortality. This, you know, corruption must put on in, this corruptible must put on incorruption. And, uh, so, but beyond that, we know that we will have our identity. We know we will know each other. We are human beings made in the image of God, and, and that identity never goes away. You know, you can you can have all the gender-affirming surgery you want. It doesn't change who you are. You are a sinner in need of a savior, and in, and it's it, who we are is the real us on the inside. So I can bleach my hair. I can paint it green. I can cut off an arm. I can you know maim myself in any number of ways, and it doesn't change who I am. I am still Jv Hickson. And God knows that and people will know that in heaven. I'll be in heaven because I've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. But the physical aspect of man goes back to the ground where it came from. And then God reconstitutes the very atoms of our physicality into a glorified eternal body that cannot be touched by sin or corruption or anything else. Remember Jesus said, store up treasures for yourself in heaven where neither thieves can break in and steal moths and rust can't come in and corrode it or destroy it. Uh, so so heaven is is only the eternal state. You know, when we talk about heaven, by the way, as we're about to see, we're talking about the new heavens and the new earth. Not, so the eternal dwelling place of the redeemed, you and I, and all redeemed of all ages, is not strictly speaking heaven. It's the new heavens and the new earth. So the very earth that God created, remember in six literal 24-hour days, on the sixth day He created man, that very earth is our dwelling place. It's got a problem, right? It's, it's under the curse of sin, and it's fading away, not because of anthropomorphic uh, global warming, anthropogenic global warming. It's not, that's not the issue, uh, although the earth is going to get really, really hot someday when God destroys it by fire. That's not the issue. The issue is sin. Uh, the whole earth groans, Paul tells us in Romans 8, uh, waiting to be clothed in per- perfection once again. And so, uh, but this is our dwelling place. And someday God's not going to just fix it, He's going to recreate it. And, and, uh, and when He does, then we will be back into the pre-fall Edenic state in the garden. Once again, perfect fellowship and, uh, and, and, and perfect righteousness and perfect peace and perfect justice. We will experience a foretaste of that uh, in the millennial phase of the kingdom uh, in the sense that, you know, the curse of sin is minimized. Satan is put in prison. Deception is less. uh, And people will live longer. There will be no injustices because Christ will be ruling on the throne in perfect justice. There will be no accidents and tragedies and those kinds of things. But it's still the old earth. And even though it will be vastly improved when we ha- finally have a righteous ruler, um, and by the way, compared to the ruler that's go- that will have ruled for seven years prior to the return of Christ, there is no comparison. It's going to be amazing. I've been kind of restudying that as I'm working on volume two of the book. And the reign of terror that we will see, the world will see, will be in heaven, but that the world on earth will see during that final seven-year period is, is unbelievable. It's just uh, horrific, and I think it's uh, just part of God's plan to just make the glory of of God, when it comes back through the person and work of Christ, when He t- takes the throne in the temple again, and the Shekinah glory finally returns to the temple, uh, shine that much brighter and look that much brighter uh, by comparison. But uh, you know, we're we are experiencing, uh, you know, the degradation of the earth, the Earth is getting worse and worse. Paul tells us this in 2 Timothy 3.13. People are getting worse and worse. But one day we will find ourselves, those who know the Lord, and I hope if you're listening to this, you've trusted Christ and Him alone for salvation because, first of all, you're not promised tomorrow. James tells us life is but a vapor. It's here today and just gone. And we all can share testimonies of loved ones and people we know that through accidents or whatever have just been gone, you know. So we're not promised tomorrow so today's the day of salvation place your faith in him but secondly you know the rapture could happen at any moment mm-hmm. and it certainly seems like it's getting closer and closer as we look at the signs of the times and once that happens it's if you haven't already trusted Christ it's going to be you know much much harder to believe the gospel then I mean, if you, if you can't believe the gospel now when the Holy Spirit is working in and through the church and the gospel is being spread through the church, we're going to talk about that in the 10 o'clock hour, then what makes you think you would readily receive the gospel when Satan is ruling the earth and the, the church is gone and this deception reaches unprecedented heights? So today's the day of salvation. But when that comes, we will uh, someday ultimately... Uh, Spend eternity in the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. So let's talk about the new Jerusalem uh, because you see this uh, come up here in uh, Revelation 21. And the new Jerusalem represents the eternal dwelling pl- place of redeemed mankind. Okay, So again, when we say oh, you go to heaven when you die or I'm going to live in heaven forever, what we really mean is the new heavens and new earth and part of that is the new Jerusalem. In the context of Revelation 21, let's read that just to have it uh, kind of out there. Uh, If you want to turn to Revelation 21, John writes, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned. For her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write. For these things are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So let's just stop there. Um, A couple of comments here. You know, John is famous in his letter for using sequential connecting words like in verse 2 you see the word then. So the New Jerusalem... Comes after or in conjunction with the uh, new heavens and the new earth, and this is important because uh, some people suggest that the new Jerusalem uh, was present during the millennium. And a lot of old school dispensationalists, uh, even some of my heroes like Darby and Ironside and uh, Gabeline from bygone era, a hundred years ago, and even uh, people in the present day, in fact. All of these have passed away now, but ones that I had as professors, like Walvert and Pentecost, or people that I worked with extensively and consider mentors, like Charles Ryrie, they all thought yes. And I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't buy it. I, I, and I think uh, even having talked to some of them, they and if you read, for example, John Walvert's book on the Revelation, he kind of holds this view with a little bit of hesitancy, not like he would die on this hill or anything. Um, And then other, you know, folks who take the Bible literally and grammatically and historically and see a literal return of Christ to establish an earthly kingdom, they say, no, the the New Jerusalem is not present in the millennium, and I agree with them. It it comes about in uh, the new heavens uh, and the the new earth. And that would be people like um, Newell and uh, Larkin. Uh, Larkin is kind of my alter ego because he loved charts, and I love charts, but... uh, I, got, I fell in love with charts, by the way, because my grandfather, who was a Bible teacher and pastor, and, 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 and really instilled in me a love for the end times, gave me, handed down to me, Larkin's book of uh, charts, Clarence Larkin. And it's still on my shelf, it's taped together with, like, almost looks like white, like medical tape or something that he taped together, it's falling apart, and uh, and I used to just love to flip through that and see the charts, and it helped me understand Uh, scripture and so that's why i like to use charts when i teach yeah Um,
1: a a question Um, the new heavens and the new earth Um, the earth by definition is matter correct Um, so in the new heavens and new earth um, if if uh, i should say if i should say when god destroys the old earth and creates new heavens and a new earth. There is no new Jerusalem. There's no Jerusalem at all, right? Well there's a new one. That's what that's once what we're talking. He is,
0: yeah. That's why it's called the New Jerusalem.
1: Right. So it couldn't couldn't yeah. have been in the millennium because it, well, it got destroyed. Right?
0: That's my view, yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna elaborate on that. But the comment was I think he was sitting close enough that it picked up, but just to be clear, he's kinda pointing out that if all if the old earth is destroyed, that includes Jerusalem. And therefore, unless God recreates it, it could not have been present, you know, uh, uh, on the earth. Because then you've got two Jerusalems, right? You've got the existing Jerusalem that's part of the old earth for that thousand-year millennium. And then God creates sort of a a counter-Jerusalem. So it doesn't make sense. The bottom line is the new can't come until the old is done away with. And I'm going to get to that in just a second. But I want to read this quote from... John Walbert. Again, many of you may not know that name, but I encourage you to buy every book he ever wrote. Uh, he is a credible man of God. Uh, died, boy, time goes by pretty fast. It, probably ten years ago now, maybe more. Um, and, uh, but I had him as a professor, and uh, I got to spend some time with him outside of class. Also, later on in my ministry career, worked with him at conferences. But uh, he admits, even though he held the view... That the, that the new Jerusalem that Mike was just referring to is kind of like this satellite city hovering above the old earth during the millennium. And that believers from the church age, you and I, can come and go from the earthly Jerusalem to the heavenly Jerusalem kind of like astronauts or something, right? Um, but uh, I don't hold that view and a lot of people don't hold that view. It was kind of an old uh, view. But Walbert admits the possibility of Jerusalem being a satellite city over the earth during the millennium is not specifically taught in any scripture and at best is an inference based on the implication that it has been in existence prior to its introduction in Revelation 21. But but where does that inference come from, right? So as we read, John saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then he says, I saw uh, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. So uh, the reason I think the New Jerusalem is not in existence during the millennium, not that this is that big of a deal, but the text talks about it, and you see a lot of writing about it. I want to just give you my view. The characteristics of the New Jerusalem are distinct from the characteristics of the millennial Jerusalem. New New Jerusalem has no temple. We're going to get to those characteristics in a moment. Uh, the apportionment of the land and the description of the temple are entirely different. So you see the New Jerusalem in the description in Revelation 21. You compare that to the Millennial Temple in Ezekiel 40-48. to 48, They're different. There's no night in the New Jerusalem. The curse of sin is removed in the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem reign is eternal. You know, there's no end to it, whereas the Millennial reign is a thousand years. And in the context of Revelation 21, 1-8, which we just read... Uh, it presupposes the elimination of the old. And that's, I think, what Mike was, was getting at. Two coexisting cities is not possible. Um, notice what he said in verse 4. The former things have passed away. What are the former things? The things he's just uh, discussed. Um, the flow of thought, by the way, in the last three books of the Bible would create this incongruity for there to for the vision in 21:9 to 22:7, you know, you'd have to kind of have that going back to the millennial conditions after having introduced the final judgment in 21:1 to 8. So it just doesn't add up to me. I think the New Jerusalem, like the New Heaven and New Earth, is something that we can look forward to. It's a perfection. It's whereas the millennial phase is just a foretaste of what's to come. Uh, not only that, but again, getting back to Mike and I's discussion a second ago, what happens to the old earth, which includes the old Jerusalem? It's, you know, destroyed. Well, if the new Jerusalem was already in place, what happens to it when the earth is destroyed? Well, it would create this weird situation where somehow God, and that's why they called it a satellite city, because it couldn't be on the earth, because that's destroyed, right? So, well, it must be up in the heavenlies, or just, you know, and then it comes down later no no it's definitely in the heavenlies and and the writer of Hebrews talks about how everything we see on earth is a shadow of the of the substance that is in heaven so the new Jerusalem is going to come from the realm of the eternal back down to the earth once it's recreated but it doesn't happen until after the old earth is uh, destroyed because otherwise you know you've got just some awkward situation uh, there so I want to just touch on a couple more of these verses that we just read and point out some things that sometimes people misunderstand. Um, so I already talked about how there's no more sea. Last time we were together, I talked about how water is a, uh, sort of a representation of, of man and sin, and, and it go back to the flood when the waters came down from above and uh, from the deep, uh, destroying the earth. Um, So that's the reason there's no more C. Um, When it says the New Jerusalem comes down as a bride adorned for his husband, that's a metaphor, obviously. We're not talking about a literal groom, bride and groom in marriage. It's a metaphor. And that metaphor, like a lot of metaphors, is used multiple times in Scripture. And it would be a mistake to assume that they're all talking about the same thing. So... It is the case that both the church and Israel are, in a sense, brides. That doesn't mean we're one people group. The church is distinct from Israel. God has an eternal plan and purpose for the church. He has an eternal plan and purpose uh, for uh, His chosen nation, Israel. Uh, and so, don't you know make a, a, an unnecessary cross reference to you know the wedding of the 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 lamb and us being the bride of Christ and all that. That's just a a metaphor that speaks of intimacy uh, remember Paul said Christ that, that we should love our wives the way Christ loved the church and marriage is one of the divine institutions that God created in the you know first chapters of of Genesis and it speaks of two becoming one in this you know uh, unparalleled intimacy well <clears throat> they the scriptures use that metaphor to describe the intimacy that we have with God ultimately and that's what verse 3 says be, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, "Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men; that is the dwelling place of God." And he, remember, in the wilderness, the tabernacle represented the presence of God. And He will dwell with them, and they shall pe- be His people, and God Himself will be with them, and be their God. That's not. That's not to say that God is not with us now, that He's not our God now, but you know, there's a. There's a difference between the intimacy that Adam and Eve had walking and talking and fellowshipping with God in the garden prior to the fall and what we have today. I mean, there is a new and living way that's opened up for us. We do have access to God through prayer. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the, that kind of fellowship. But it pales in comparison to the perfect fellowship that we will have someday when time shall be no more. And so often... Throughout the prophets and scripture, you see this reference to, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's a catchphrase or a technical phrase, if you will, to refer to that final perfect intimacy. It's not to say that God's not our God now, but He's nothing. The relationship we have with Him today is nothing compared to what it will be like ultimately. Yeah?
1: Another question for you um, Does that imply. Does it imply, is it implied that time is actually part of the curse of sin?
0: Is time part of the curse of sin? No. As
1: opposed to in the end times where time shall be no more, and you have perfect fellowship on the new yeah. heavens and the new earth, uh, you, you don't grow old, you don't die, whereas time is yeah.
0: Know, I is don't the of Time It was not a part of the curse of sin because time existed before sin. So, you know night and day were created before man even and then obviously before the fall of man so but uh, what you, you might say it this way time like every other created thing was cursed by sin right but it wasn't it wasn't the curse of sin or it wasn't created bad it was created good god saw everything he created it was very very good but in, when, when time shall be no more, in the eternal state, we won't have night and day. We won't have darkness. We'll have just the eternal now. So um, one last thing on this verse just to point out, because you'll hear this from people and in writings and people that really, I don't think, connect the dots properly. Verse 4 says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Again, that's just a rhetorical or poetic way of saying there will be no sadness. In fact, he goes on to say that there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. Some people say, well, if he's going to wipe away your tears, there must be tears in heaven. Right? That's not what he's saying. There are no tears in heaven. It's just a way of, of, of saying I'm going to permanently wipe away every tear from their eyes. So there will be no sorrow nor sadness. Uh, at the Bema judgment when that's uh, associated only with the church and comes after the rapture, while... Well, we're rescued from the great and terrible day of the Lord, that final seven-year period, we're in heaven experiencing the marriage of the Lamb, that final, you know, union, if you will, with Christ, and the Bema judgment. And then we come back at, at the end of the seven years and help rule and reign on the earth. And at the Bema, there will be regret, not in a sense of uh, punishment, but in a sense of wishing we would have done more. That's the reason 1 John 2.28 says little children, abide in Him, which means to remain in close fellowship with Him, so that when He appears, you will have confidence and not be ashamed before Him. So there will be that moment, just prior to entrance into heaven, when, you know, we're all going to wish we'd done more, you know, and, and we're going to see Him face to face. We're going to see the one who was wounded for our transgressions. We're going to see the one that took our place on the cross. And in that moment, we're going to wish we'd done more. Uh, so that's, that's one of the motivations is to store up treasures, to earn rewards uh, that will be pr- provided at the judgment seat. Uh, so just wanted to clarify that about uh, tears. So um, we'll have to pick up next week with the description, and, uh, and it's just an incredible, you know, splendor like nothing else. But before we sh- uh, finish for this morning, are there any other questions or or thoughts, or comments? Yes? So, prior to that, there's two places, heaven and earth, but then there only the heavens, and then will be the that be down here. So, the comment is, prior to the eternal state, there are two places, heaven and earth, but after that, there's just one. No, there's still two. There's still heavens and earth, uh, but they're perfect. I mean, the heaven was always perfect, but... And the heavens, by the way, in Scripture, and we see this in Paul's writings, there's, there's kind of three levels. There's the atmosphere that you can see. Then there's the part beyond that. And then there's the dwelling place of God. That's not the part that's being recreated. God was never created. He eternally exists. So that heaven's not what's being created. The heavens that it's talking about are the created realm. And those every created thing is under the curse of sin. When, when Adam fell, it put a curse on all of creation. And so those heavenlies have to be recreated. But they're still distinct place, just like... The earth is a distinct place, and Jerusalem is a distinct place. It's just going to not have the curse of sin anymore. That's the distinction. So, the eternal state? Has two well, the eternal state is just like the the garden, if you will. It's got earth and heaven and sinless perfection. Um, but all mankind will be on the earth. Yeah, that's one of the questions that's hard to really answer. The, uh, the question was will all mankind only be on the earth? Uh, I believe that. You know we will be able to come and go from heaven to earth because we see that with other examples in scripture even now we see satan being able to go into heaven we see um, people that die of course they immediately go into the presence of the lord uh, to be absent from the bodies to be present with the lord so i think we'll still be able to go come and go but the heavens will represent the dwelling place of god the earth the dwelling place of man but it's it it's not that they merge, it's just that they're both now perfect. So good question. Yeah. I have lots of
1: questions today. I know. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, who was the first uh, resident of hell,
0: do you think? Oh, who was the first resident of hell? Would it be Adam and Eve? No, no. No, they were in heaven. Yeah. So they okay. believed. Yeah. Okay. So um, I, I will resist the temptation to <laughs> assign anybody to hell. Though I do keep a list, but uh, no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, uh, but no, I don't know. I mean, uh, possibly Cain. I mean, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. But uh,
1: well, Wouldn't that be the ultimate sign of God's grace, that the guy that, the, the man and the woman who messed everything up for everybody?
0: It is, yeah.
1: God's grace, and they didn't have to, They didn't end up in, in the
0: fire. Yeah, and sure. that's what I started with in my kind of quick, yeah. spontaneous... Uh, survey from Genesis to the, new, to the eternal state, is yeah. that when God made a covering for Adam and Eve in the garden, that was grace. That was grace. So, yes, Sally. Um, if a transgender person is not a believer, when they die in the spirit, will go, okay. Right? Anybody. The question is, if a transgender person is not a believer and they die, their soul goes to hell. Yeah, that's true of any unbeliever. No, because you know they're going to be who they are. The question is, will they still be transgender? There is no such thing as transgender. You are who you are. You are who God made you. You can again, you can have surgery and and declare and identify and all those things that Satan is promoting. I have a new I have a chapter in the new book called the gender surrender perversion in the gender surrender movement, and I get into all of this in great detail. And again, that we're hoping it'll be out October, November could be closer to Thanksgiving, but we'll see in that time frame. But no, everyone, anyone, regardless of their behavior on Earth, if they've not received the free gift of salvation and the payment of uh, for their sin on, that Christ made, will spend eternity in hell. It doesn't matter what their behavior or decisions were like. You're not your eternal your destiny is not based upon your. Choices and decisions and and declarations on earth. It's based on whether you've trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation. So, yeah. Now, very, before you ask this question, no pressure, but it's the last question of the day. So make it a good one. Make it the most profound question of the morning. Him,
1: well, Satan's, bound the right?
0: Satan's bound during the millennium, right? Where are the demons? So the demons are still where they are today. And remember, you've got. Loose and active demons that are part of the co-conspiracy with Satan to take over the world. You've got some demons that are in prison in the abyss that are temporarily confined, but at the midpoint of the tribulation, they will be released, Revelation tells us, for that final battle. And then you've got another small number of demons that are permanently imprisoned in Tartarus. And these are the demons that left their proper domain and cohabited with women in Genesis 6. All of them at the end will be cast into the everlasting lake of fire, which Jesus tells us was prepared for the devil and his angels. But uh, during all of this other stuff, the demons are still, you know, doing what they're doing today. Yeah, that's the common is that's why there's a little bit of sin going on during the millennium. Yeah, remember as we talked about, I believe unbelievers can and will sin. We can't blame it on the demons, though. We can't blame sin today on the demons. They're out there attacking and influencing and harming and trying to kill, steal, and destroy and do all the things that Satan and his regime are doing. But sin is ultimately a matter of catering to the flesh versus not catering to the flesh. So it's a product of the flesh. All right. Well, thank you guys very much. Thanks for the extra six minutes. We will take a break. We'll come back together here locally at about 5 after 10, give you a little extra time to get started, and then the live stream will begin around 10.30, give or take 5 or 10 minutes mountain time.